You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Ukrainian and Russian cyber operations at six months. Octopus criminal campaign compromises 9,931 accounts in more than 130 organizations. Exotic Lily and Bumblebee Loader. Insights derived from DNS traffic. Chris Novak from Verizon on DHS's Cyber Safety Review Board's report on the Log4J investigation. Dave Bittner sits down with our guest, Dr. Scott Crowder, CTO and VP Quantum Computing, Technical Strategy, and Transformation for IBM Systems, to discuss the increasingly urgent need for industries to prepare for security threats that Quantum could unleash. And the U.S. Department of Homeland Security shutters its Disinformation Governance Board. Cyberwire Studios at Data Tribe. I'm Trey Hester, filling in for Dave Bittner with your Cyberwire summary for Thursday, August 25th, 2022. Politico reviews Ukraine's offensive cyber operations during the hybrid war Russia launched in February, and it concludes loosely that Kyiv has successfully executed portions of a playbook hitherto associated with Moscow. The article outlines four areas where it regards Ukraine as having been particularly successful. The first has come to be generally recognized. Ukraine has been far more successful than Russia at influence operations, controlling the narrative. It's done so without widespread use of coordinated inauthenticity, and it's operated in a highly distributed way that contrasts sharply with Russian centralized top-down approach to propaganda. It's also relied heavily on truth-telling. Moscow's approach has found some limited traction in Africa and Latin America. The Ukraine has been far more successful in shaping international opinion. The second success is related, insofar as it also involves an influence campaign. Ukraine has succeeded in persuading Western tech companies to abandon Russia, effectively inducing an undesirable form of internet autarky Russia has long sought. Third, Ukraine has succeeded in attracting international hacktivist support. Their work has largely been at a nuisance level, but it's been embarrassing to its Russian targets. Russia also made extensive use of hacktivists, but these have for the most part been at best privateers and often fronts for units of intelligence and security services. Ukraine has succeeded in crowdsourcing some of their cyber operations. Volunteers, many of them domestic, 
have also provided defensive resiliency to Ukrainian networks, ABC News reports. And finally, Ukraine has been able to use data against Russian interests, including both analytic tools from firms including Palantir and facial recognition tools from Clearview AI. In a look at the Russian phases of the cyber conflict, Trustwave researchers describe the distinctive and characteristic tool of Russian operations, wipers. Those tools saw some success in the early days of the invasion, but have grown less prominent as the war has progressed. Group IB reports that phishing attacks against employees of Twilio and Cloudflare that impersonated Okta's identity and access management services formed part of a campaign that compromised 9,931 accounts in more than 130 organizations. Most of the victims were in the United States and were Okta users. Group IB explains, quote, The initial objective of the attackers was clear. Obtain Okta identity credentials and two-factor authentication codes from users of the targeted organizations. With this information in hand, the attackers could gain unauthorized access to any enterprise resources the victims have access to. End quote. The attackers showed a mixture of sophistication and inexperience, making use of simple commodity tools in a convincing way, but with static pages and a phishing kit ill-configured for mobile devices. The researchers developed some information on the threat actor behind what appears to be a criminally motivated operation. Subject X, as Group IB calls him, is thought to be a 22-year-old software developer working from the U.S. state of North Carolina. Group IB has shared what it knows with law enforcement. Deep Instinct has released a report describing the Bumblebee loader. The threat actor used a phishing email to gain trust and then sent malicious files to the victim under the guise that the files were for a file-sharing platform. The files execute a script that drops the Bumblebee payload. This has been found by researchers to be consistent with activity from threat actor Exotic Lily. And Google's tag says, quote, Exotic Lily seems to operate as a separate entity, focusing on acquiring initial access through email campaigns, with follow-up activities that include deployment of Conti and Diavol ransomware, which are performed by a different set of actors, end quote. Exotic Lily has been described by Google's Threat Analysis Group as a financially motivated initial access broker that works closely with elements of the Russian underworld, particularly the gang tracked as Fin12 or Wizard Spider. Thus, Exotic Lily is a player in the C2C market. Akamai This Morning released a report detailing insights into DNS traffic in quarter two of this year. Researchers found that just over 12% of devices monitored by Akamai interacted at least once with domains associated with malware and ransomware. Malware and ransomware had the highest level of interaction, with 63% of potentially compromised devices interacting with those types of domains, whereas 32% of interactions were with phishing domains and 5% were with C2. High-tech and financial services were the most impersonated industries, with consumer attacks making up over 80% of phishing attacks. Crypto was also found to be the most used phishing toolkit found in over 500 domains. And finally, the U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, yesterday announced that his department was canceling plans to establish a disinformation governance board. Quote, In accordance with the Homeland Security Advisory Council's prior recommendation, Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas has terminated the disinformation governance board and rescinded its charter effective today, August 24, 2022. With the HSAC recommendations as a guide, the department will continue to address threat streams that undermine the security of our country consistent with the law 
while upholding the privacy, civil rights, and civil liberties of the American people and promoting transparency in our work, end quote. The Disinformation Governance Board had drawn criticisms as a step toward erosion of freedom of speech, which, of course, the department was at pains to dispute, but nonetheless induced a pause in the board's formation and a request for advice, which the department has now received and accepted. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. NIST, the U.S. National Institute of Standards and Technology, recently selected four new industry-wide cryptographic standards to help protect against the coming threat of quantum computers. It's complicated stuff, and so to help explain it all, I reached out to Dr. Scott Crowder. He's CTO and VP for Quantum Computing, Technical Strategy and Transformation for IBM Systems. So quantum computers in general you know, are really good at three kinds of math. So far, that's been proven. And one kind of math is solving, you know, simulating nature. So the math around, you know, chemistry, materials, development, all those kinds of problems. The second type of math that's really relevant for this conversation is around finding patterns in complex data. Um, and factoring and discrete log kind of fall into that category. So the good news for society is also really good stuff that, you know, it can do as well you know, in machine learning and, and other places. But for this conversation, the reason why we really are interested is because uh, quantum computers, when they get big enough, will be good at that kind of math. And the third kind of math is kind of search, uh, which has uh, implications for portfolio optimization, risk, and all that kind of stuff. It also can be applied for you know, some of the uh, symmetric as well. But the good news from a crypto point of view or a decryption point of view is that uh, that speed up is only polynomial, so you can just make 
increase the number of bits in your symmetric system and you, you probably will be quantum resistant for quite some time. Uh, but for asymmetric, it's a little bit more serious because you know, the fundamentals of factoring and discrete log and uh, elliptical curve, et cetera, et cetera, really do need to get changed. Uh, quantum computing, when they get large enough and low enough errors, will be able to do that math you know, very efficiently. You know, I, I think my perception certainly has been for a number of years that um, I, I guess in my mind, I kind of lumped quantum computing in with nuclear fusion, whereas, you know, there's that old joke about how it's always 20 years away no matter when you ask. But it seems as though we're we're getting closer with this technology. Where do we stand today? What, what, do, what do folks in the business uh, estimate a, a realistic timeline might be? Yeah, I mean, you know, so I, I'm not going to give you a, a date for uh, the decryption part because I never want to underestimate human ingenuity. But you know, from a just basic making quantum computers practical, you know, when I started getting involved in this um, six years ago, now you know, we had a five qubit system that we had just put on the cloud and let people play with, uh, and the error rates on the fidelities on those things were like 99 percent. And you know, to make them practical. We need to get the scale of them up to, you know, in the hundreds to thousands, uh, and we need to get the, you know, the error rates for you know, the basic operations into, you know, 99.99% or 99.999% fidelity, because then you can start using error mitigation to trade off. And over the last six years, we've gone from five qubits to 127. We'll be at 433 this year, over 1,000 next year. So from a scale point of view, we're rapidly improving. And then from a gate error improvement, you know, we've gone over an order of magnitude improvement you know, in the last five years, and we demonstrated it in the last year, 99.9% two-cubic gate fidelities. So at IBM, we've kind of published a year-by-year, -year, very detailed roadmap you know, going out to the middle of this decade, to 2026, with you know, what we're going to deliver every year to kind of cut through the hype you know, and say, okay, today... These systems are not big enough or low enough error rates in order for them to be practical, you know, better than classical computers. But if we keep marching along, by the middle of this decade, they will. And that's probably when you're going to see the first practical use for other applications, not decryption, but for other applications uh, like machine learning, you know, like simulating nature, et cetera, et cetera. It's going to take a little while beyond that uh, to get the systems large enough you know, to really do the kinds of things that we're all worried about uh, from a decryption point of view. Well, let's go through uh, the things that NIST has uh, put out here. Uh, what strikes you as uh, as really deserving our attention here in, in the stuff that they've put out? Yeah, so, so, so basically they put out, um, you know, uh, a, a one uh, standard for, you know, methodology for, um, you know, PKE, which is uh, Crystal's Kyber, uh, and they put out you know three standards for digital signature: uh, Crystal's Lithium, uh, Falcon, and Sphinx. The first three that I mentioned are all based on some methodology of lattice uh, crypt cryptography, uh, and then the last one you know uses a, a stateless hash uh, methodology. You know, I, you know, you know, our team, not me personally, but our team in IBM Research has been working on this for for many, many years. And, you know, in fact, you know, the first three came out of you know IBM Zurich uh, working with you know their collaborators. So you know, we feel fairly confident 
Um, well, we felt fairly confident that NIST was going to select them because we had, you know, done a lot of work beating on them and making sure that we felt that those were going to be quantum resistant. And then the fourth one, you know, <laughs> you know we, we actually hired the guy who contributed to that one as well. So um, we, we feel, we feel you know, personally, we feel like, I feel like, you know, NIST has done a good job of due diligence on these, you know, kicking the tires and have selected good standards here for the first round of these. And I think it's now at the point where we need to start working um, with, you know, government agencies and industrial clients, you know, in, in key areas where we need to protect the infrastructure to understand how we're going to leverage this, these algorithms, these schemes to implement, you know, starting with the, the areas that are of the you know, largest risk uh, and then working from there. Is it at all possible that we could have, you know, something along the lines of a Sputnik moment where you know, one of our adversaries uh, suddenly comes out and, and says, uh, we're, we're farther ahead of this than we had expected them to be? Um, I would be surprised, but I'm not sure I would give too many people, you know, I wouldn't overstate that and say, like, everybody should feel really comfortable. Um, yeah. I, I think, you know, more likely than the underlying computing capability being like, you know, jumping up way beyond our, our published roadmap um, would be if there's some spark of human ingenuity on, you know, how to leverage error mitigation or some other technique to be able to use more noisy quantum computers to do, you know, sh- you know effectively, uh, you know, a variation of Shor's algorithm or something like that. That would surprise me a little bit less than, you know, an adversary all of a sudden having, you know, a quantum system that's like four years ahead of, you know, the state of the art in, you know, IBM or, you know, one of the other large players that are putting a lot of investment in. That being yeah. said, like, you know, I, I wouldn't bet the national security on it. You know, I think, <laughs> right, you know, right. so, you know, I, I think, it, I think that's why it was important for NIST to do what NIST has done and the Biden administration and the U.S. government over multiple administrations really taking this seriously and, um, you know, asking the agencies uh, across the board to get their act togethers and you know, put plans in place to, um, you know, become quantum safe. That's Dr. Scott Crowder from IBM Systems. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Chris Novak. He is Managing Director for Security Professional Services at Verizon. Uh, Chris, always great to have you back. I want to touch today on some work I know you and your colleagues have been doing when it comes to investigating Log4J. What can you share with us today? Sure, yeah. Thanks, Dave. Always a pleasure to be here. So, uh, yeah, the uh, 
the thing you're referring to there is the uh, Cyber Safety Review Board. So um, for folks who may not be familiar, this was actually created uh, by President Biden's uh, Executive Order uh, 14028 for for all the the gov geeks out there, um, <laughs> and uh, and we we really kicked off in earnest um, February of this year, and the first investigation was into Log4j, as you noted, and it's interesting. It's a combination of you know government employees as well as private sector uh, citizens, essentially kind of looking at it through the lens of you know like an NTSB, but for cyber. And the first report was just released uh, a couple of weeks ago now and really gave some interesting insights into, you know, what it is that us as a cyber safety review board saw kind of manifesting in that log4j situation. It was, you know, arguably one of the most serious software vulnerabilities that we've seen. And I think, you know, one of the things that really jumped out at, at everybody throughout the course of that investigation, and you'll see it noted in the report, is just the sheer challenge that every organization, large and small, had with just simply understanding where Log4j existed in their environment. For for folks who are not keeping track on this one, it's a library that exists in lots of software, other open source software, other commercial software. Log4j itself is part of an open source software foundation managed by Apache. So that in and of itself created a lot of challenges for organizations, like I said, and just understanding where it exists to then be able to follow that up and say, how do we remediate it, right? Yeah. I mean, is that revelation, would you consider that to be an aha moment of the investigation? I would say it would be an aha moment for a lot of folks who were looking at the problem because I think mm. historically everybody looked at vulnerability management in a lot of ways through the lens of, well, my vendor, my provider, my someone will give me a patch when something pops up. And what I think became very clear to a lot of individuals and a lot of organizations, especially if you're using things that are open source, is there may not be a specific cadence that the open source software community um, will work towards in terms of applying patches or releasing patches. Obviously, a lot of the work that we see that comes out of the open source software community is fantastic work. Some of the smartest minds in the world are contributing their talents to that work effort, but a lot of that is volunteer-based. And so things happen on a kind of as-available type of basis. There's not necessarily the same manner of operations as you might see, for example, for a commercial off-the-shelf piece of software where you're paying for that licensed software, you're paying for support. You may even have contractual terms that dictate, hey, if there is an issue or a bug, there is a timeline for a fix or a patch or some way to address it. When you're looking at open source, you don't necessarily have that. And I think to your point, I think everybody deep down recognizes that, but I think they mm. started to see with Log4j the, the prevalence of it um, within a lot of other applications. And so what are the recommendations going forward? Yeah, so obviously one of the big things that comes out of it is this is, you know, we've kind of referred to it as kind of almost an endemic kind of problem in the sense that Log4j itself is going to be here for a while. There's still a lot of organizations still trying to wrap their arms around it. So a big piece of it is going to be monitoring and maturing vulnerability management practices within and across organizations so that they can at least try to get caught up on what this one looks like. Um, and then also one of the big recommendations coming out of it is improving things like software bill of materials tooling and adoptability. Mm. 
because mm -hmm. a key component of being able to identify that it even exists in your environment is knowing what the ingredients are. You know, I say it's kind of almost like if you have an allergy to a specific type of food, knowing that it is part of your meal would be important. If you don't know kind of what that makeup is, you're going to struggle in understanding that there may be something underlying there that is a concern. So that software bill materials or SBOM is very important. Another thing that was also a big recommendation coming out of it was evaluating the efficacy of something like a cyber safety reporting system. So kind of akin to, uh, and, and one of the things that we really looked closely at is what the aviation sector did in terms mm. of how employees and anybody involved in that sector could report things that might be of concern as it relates to security or safety. And there was a manner in which that could be filtered out, reviewed, investigated, and then determined what um, what might ultimately happen from a mitigation or a, an improvement standpoint. Might there be an opportunity to do something like that for cyber as well? Hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. All right, well, Chris Novak, thanks for joining us. Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technology. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Liz Irvin, Rachel Gelfin, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Trey Hester, filling in for Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. See you back here tomorrow.